We will turn to two scripture texts, in, first in the Old Testament. These are both in relation to the topic this afternoon, which is on the providence and sovereignty of God. Our first reading will come from Genesis chapter 45. And we'll read verses 1 through 15. It's a very well-known story, the story of Joseph, but teaches important principles also for us to learn from. Genesis 45, beginning in verse 1. Then Joseph, after his brothers had come before him and he had been negotiating with them, then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried, make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. So Joseph said to his brothers, Come near to me, please. And they came near. And he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves, because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord to all of his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, Thus says your son Joseph, God has made me lord of all Egypt. Come down to me, do not tarry. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen, and you shall be near, you shall be near me, you and your children and your children's children, and your flocks, your herds, and all that you have. There I will provide for you, for there are yet five years of famine to come, so that you and your household and all that you have do not come to poverty. And now your eyes see, and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see, that it is my mouth that speaks to you. You must tell my father of all my honor in Egypt, and of all that you have seen. Hurry and bring my father down here. Then he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and wept, and Benjamin wept upon his neck. And, all, and he kissed all his brothers and wept upon them. After that, his brothers talked with him. So far from Genesis 45, let's also turn now to the New Testament, to Acts chapter 17. Some of you may have noticed this was also part of our reading last week in relation to the doctrine of creation. And we'll be looking at these same words by the Apostle Paul now in connection with the doctrine of God's sovereignty and God's providence. Acts 17, just a few verses, 22 to 31. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. 
What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything." And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own prophets have said, for we are indeed his offspring." Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead." So far from the Word of God. And this, this week we find ourselves in Lord's Day 10. And that's on page 525 of your books of praise. And there the question is, what do you understand by the providence of God? God's providence is His almighty and ever-present power, whereby, as with His hand, He still upholds heaven and earth and all creatures, and so governs them that leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and barren years, food and drink, health and sickness, riches and poverty, indeed all things come to us, not by chance, but by His fatherly hand." What does it benefit us to know that God has created all things and still upholds them by His providence? We can be patient in adversity, thankful in prosperity, and with a view to the future, we can have a firm confidence in our faithful God and Father that no creature shall separate us from His love. For all creatures are so completely in His hand that without His will, they cannot so much as move. So far from the Heidelberg Catechism. Brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, last week we looked at the doctrine of creation, which the Apostles' Creed begins with, and as we saw also Paul's ministry when he went to the pagan Greeks also began with the Bible itself begins with. And I said last week that creation is the foundation of the Christian faith, and without creation you cannot have the Christian faith. And one of the things I emphasized last week is that Scripture teaches that God is distinct from creation. We don't believe that creation is God, or even a manifestation of God, or that God is somehow one with his creation. He is distinct from creation. God is eternal. God has no beginning. He exists in himself. Nothing sustains God's existence. Now that's not true of creation. Creation has a beginning. The universe is not uh, eternal. 
And the universe doesn't exist in itself the way that God does. It's constantly, continually sustained by God. That's, that's part of what we'll see here in the doctrine of providence. And everything that happens in creation is also directed, governed by God. Well, that's what the doctrine of providence is all about. The doctrine of providence is not actually mentioned in the Apostles' Creed. We we confess, I believe, in God, the Father, creator of heaven and earth, and then the Creed moves on from God the Father. But the Catechism still devotes an entire Lord's Day to this doctrine because it follows from the doctrine of creation, and it's foundational to the Christian worldview as much as creation is. Well, let me say a couple things about the doctrine of providence before, before we begin. A couple of reasons why it's so important that we do work through this doctrine. First, the idea of providence is, for, for many people, probably the hardest doctrine in Scripture to, to accept. And that's not because it's not very clearly taught in Scripture. In fact, it's, it's one of the most clearly taught doctrines in Scripture, And I could easily list dozens of passages that speak to God's sovereignty and God's providence. And I imagine you could think of several yourselves. So it's not hard to accept because it's unclear, but it's hard to accept because there's an emotional barrier for for many people in accepting the idea that God is sovereign. Because it leaves you with, with difficult questions like, why does God then allow evil? Why does God bring so much suffering into the world? Providence is very, very clearly taught in Scripture, but emotionally it's very, very difficult for, for many Christians to, to accept. And second, the other reason why it's important that we work through this doctrine is because the knowledge of God's providence makes all the difference for your faith, especially in trials and suffering, which all of you will face. And without the knowledge of God's providence, that suffering then becomes meaningless and unbearable far more than when we endure under the providence of God. Knowing that all things come from God's hands allows us to use the trials that God has given us for His glory and for our own personal growth in our faith. Trusting in God's providence and drawing near to Him in the midst of trials are the moments when our faith grows the most. So it's very much then worth taking the time to understand the doctrine of God's providence and to see how this also touches down into our lives. The Catechism gives a very good definition of this doctrine of God's providence. In summary form, God's providence is His almighty, ever-present power, whereby, as with His hand, you'll notice two things, He upholds heaven and earth and all creatures, and He governs them so that nothing comes to us by chance but by His fatherly hand. So there's those two elements in that definition of God's providence. One is the fact that God upholds the universe, which is to say everything continues to exist and everything is sustained together by God's power. Psalm 104, verse 29, All creatures look to you. When you take away their breath, they die and return to the dust. So God not only created the world in the beginning by His Word, by His power, 
but he also continually upholds and sustains the universe by his word and by his power. The Bible doesn't at all teach the pagan notion that's called deism, that God set the earth into motion like a watchmaker sets a watch into motion and then leaves it there to tick away under its own rules and and power. No, God continually holds the universe together, sustains all reality by his word and by his power. So, so we took a second look then at Acts 17, and you notice that this, this recognition that God sustains the universe follows from the doctrine of creation. So the Apostle Paul preached to the pagan Greeks, and after he told them that God created the world, he emphasized that that same God also continues to sustain the world in every moment. So Acts 17, verse 28, he said, In him we live and move and have our being. You see those three, three things there. In God we live and move and have our being. So in God we live. Every, every breath that we take is given to us by God. Every heartbeat comes from God. In Him we move. We cannot go from point A to point B without God's will. In fact, it's interesting if you look at the context from which Paul was preaching. The ancient Greek philosophers had many discussions about how, how is movement even possible. If you're interested, you can look up Zeno's paradoxes or the story of Achilles and the tortoise. And these are mysteries that even still today, it's, it's open for debate whether these paradoxes have been solved. And, and the more we learn about the space-time continuum in which we live, the more we recognize how mysterious and strange it truly is. So in God, not only do we live, but even we move. You cannot go from point A to point B without God taking you every step of the way. And not only that, but in God, thirdly, we even have our being, he says. That's the third thing that Paul mentions. And it means that God sustains your very existence. You might ask, what is this world made of and and you might break it down into into molecules and then atoms and quarks and keep breaking it all down but at the end of the day what are even those made of you can keep breaking it down in the end we reduce the world to the word of god that's the essence of all being this world is made of god's word it's what this pulpit is made of that's what you are made of. You are made of the word of God who continually sustains and upholds you. Well, Scripture teaches that God the Father sustains us not only by His own power, but also through God the Son. Just as God created the universe through God the Son, so He also upholds and sustains the universe through God the Son. Colossians 1 verse 17 says of Christ, He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. Hebrews 1 verse 3 teaches the same thing. Speaking of Christ, it says, He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by the word of His power. So that's the first element of the doctrine of of God's providence, that God the Father sustains and upholds the universe by His power in every moment through God the Son. That's the first element of, of providence. The second part is, is what you see also there in the catechism, that God also governs 
the universe. He gives purpose and direction to all things that happen in the universe. God directs all things towards his purposes. You might think of what the Lord Jesus said in Matthew 10 verse 29, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny, and yet not one of them will fall to the ground except by the will of your Father. Or Proverbs 16, verse 33, the lot, like a dice, is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. God directs everything, even to the smallest details, for His purposes. Nothing happens by chance. Nothing happens except by His will and to serve His purposes. And the Catechism departs from its usual doctrinal emphasis to to take the time to work through some of the details of life. You see that it gives a list of some of the things, just for, for the sake of example, some of the things that God governs, leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and barren years, food and drink, health and sickness, and that list, of course, could just go on and on. And, and not only does God direct the things of nature for God's purposes, plants, animals, viruses, storms, those are, those, those are more or less the focus of, of the, the catechism, things like that, but he also governs nations and people for his purposes to serve also his goals. You might think of Proverbs 16, verse 9, a well-known verse to many of you, the heart of man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. Or go back to, again, the sermon that Paul preached in in Athens, and, and he says, God made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. But notice, he doesn't just leave man to figure that out. He says, God determined the allotted periods and the boundaries of each of their dwelling places. Or Daniel 2, verse 21, where, where he says, He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and he sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and he gives knowledge to those who have understanding. So God is not only sovereign over the universe, not only over the plants and animals and the the things that we might say are of nature, he's also sovereign over people and over nations. He's sovereign over history. And that brings us to a problem Is God sovereign over sin? In Genesis 37, chapters 37 through 50, we read the story of Joseph being sold as a slave by his brothers. And even though he was sold as a slave and later landed in prison, eventually, you you read in the story, by God's blessing, he becomes promoted to uh, to be second in command over all of Egypt. He says he's even as much as a father over Pharaoh. And ultimately, we find him providing for the needs of of his own brothers who had sold him into slavery. And that's a story of God's providence. And so we we read of, of how Joseph said that God sent me ahead of you. Or in Genesis 50, verse 20, he says, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring about that many people would be kept alive as they are today. You can remember that verse I was told when I was a kid and I never forgot it. We need to have not 20-20 vision, 50-20 
vision, referring to Genesis 50, verse, verse 20. And it's a good way to remember that, that verse, that perspective. God controls all things, even those that are meant for, for evil. But that can only mean, then, one thing. God is sovereign over sin. Even sin doesn't happen without God's decree. Even the worst sins, like brothers who sell their brother into slavery, do not happen without God's decree. And indeed, even worse things than that. In Acts 2, on the day of Pentecost, the apostle Peter spoke to the Jews in Jerusalem about the fact that they had just crucified the Messiah. Acts 2, verse 22, he says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus, listen to this, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. But God raised him up, loosing the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. So God was completely sovereign even over the worst event that ever happened in history. The only innocent person ever to have lived had his skin ripped off and his nails or, or his, his hands nailed to a cross to suffocate and die at the hands of lawless men. And even that was under the sovereignty of God. God used, in fact, also that for the greatest good imaginable to save many sinners, including you and me. But we might ask, well, how can God be sovereign over evil, over sin? Doesn't that make God the author of sin? Yet scripture says, no, it doesn't. First John 2, verse 16, All that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And there are many other passages that teach the same. God is not the author of evil, even though... He is sovereign over evil. And so we might be left asking, well, if God is not the author of evil, then where does evil come from? In fact, let me push the question even further back, back to the beginning. If God created Adam good, how could sin have entered into the world without God having caused it? Why would God have even given Adam the ability to sin. These are questions that many of you have also asked. And this isn't just an academic question. It's a very real personal question for many of us. Why does God not stop evil? Why did God not stop the evil that happened to me? How can God still be good? Is God sovereign over something like rape? Is God sovereign over murder? How does God let all the evil go on in the world and still call himself good? These are very real and difficult questions for many people. This is called the classic problem of evil. If God is all-knowing and all-powerful and completely good, how can evil still exist? And yet we know that evil does still exist and lots of it. And this might be even the single greatest argument that people have against the existence of God. And I should say from the outset, there is no easy answer to these questions. 
On the other hand, we can, we can go to the opposite extreme. We can take the pain and evil and suffering that it does exist in the world and conclude that God must not exist, that the sky must be empty. And then we're still left with a much harder question. What makes any of that sin and suffering evil? If there's no God to make something evil or good, then how is it still evil at all? With no God, there's no moral law. With no moral law, there's no good. With no good, there's no evil either. There's only time and chance, molecules bouncing around. And who can say if one molecule, one bag of molecules kills another, that it's a problem? We know evil does exist. We feel it, we experience it, and we know it in the bottom of our hearts. And yet God teaches in his word that he is sovereign over even the worst evil. And there's, there is certainly a point where we have to stop and, and simply conclude that God is wiser than us, that the God who made us knows what we don't know. But that said, Scripture does speak to this problem in different degrees. And there are certainly things that we can take away from Scripture about this problem. First of all, sin and the brokenness that follows from sin is man's doing, not God's. And the reality is most of us, all of us, know this at an instinctive level. Even though God is sovereign over our choices even though he knows them and indeed even decrees them, still, they are our choices. And you yourself, of course, know this. When you sin, who is it that has sinned? You know it's you. Where did the choice come from? It came from within yourself. If you're honest, you know that you are responsible for your sins. And Scripture very clearly teaches this. Man is responsible for sin. It is man's doing, not God's. James 1 verse 13 says, Let no one say when he is tempted that I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. Your choices, your decisions are your own, and you cannot blame God for them. And the same is true for anyone else's choices. People bring evil into the world. God made us, made Adam, made Eve as free and independent, responsible human beings. So one of the things we tend to do when we see evil in the world is we we want to blame shift. We want to put the blame on God for what people have done. But God says throughout Scripture, no, sin is your doing. Sin is not God's doing. We're responsible for our own actions. We cannot blame it on God, and God is not the author of your sin, nor anybody else's. Now, we could push the question back a step further. We might ask, well, why did, why did God even create people that were able to fall into sin? Couldn't he just have made us like robots that, that follow his will to, to a T and never fall into sin? And indeed, God could have made that kind of world, but he didn't. God made us to love him, and robots cannot love God. God made us as free beings, free to love him, but then also free to fall into sin. He gave us that free will. Now we might say, well, wouldn't it have been better if God had made a world of robots? At the end of the day, that's a decision that God has made and that we're not in a position to make. How can you say whether another entirely different universe is indeed better? 
So that's the first lesson we must learn from Scripture. We are responsible for our sins. God is not. God made us free, and God made us responsible for our own decisions. Secondly, we need to understand, and Scripture repeats this over and over, that we have limited sight and knowledge. History isn't over yet, and it's too early for anyone to say that God cannot make good out of the, wor- out of the evil that has existed in the world, that God couldn't bring something good out of it. Romans 11 verse 34 asks the question, who has known the mind of the Lord? And, and Paul didn't ask that question so that you would raise your hand and say, well, I think I do. No, it's a rhetorical question. No one has known the mind of the Lord. God says he will work all things for good. And, and maybe we can't, from our perspective, see how God could possibly bring the evil that has happened in the world for good. But we have limited sight and knowledge. If we say that there's no possible way that God could work good out of a universe like this, then, then we're saying ultimately, ultimately that we are wiser than God. We're saying if I can't think of a good outcome, then God must not be able to think of one either. Uh, you might think of what God said in Isaiah 55, verse, verse 8. My thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. We need to recognize we have limited sight and knowledge. And third, this is especially true because we don't even have an accurate sense of what is truly good and what's truly evil. Our experience and our knowledge of good and evil is horribly skewed and distorted. What is truly good, what is truly valuable above everything else, according to Scripture, is the glory of God. God says in Isaiah that he created us for his glory. Now we might think our pleasure or our fulfillment are are greater goods than anything else. Or our suffering, our pain is a worse evil than anything else. But that's not what scripture teaches. Scripture teaches that the glory of God is the greatest imaginable possible good. And the dishonoring of God is the greatest imaginable possible evil. So our sense of good and evil are horribly skewed. And the ultimate good that God is working towards is not only our joy, it's ultimately, above everything, His glory. So Genesis 3 teaches that God, in fact, even cursed the world, bringing about hurricanes and tornadoes and all kinds of brokenness and diseases and famines in response to Adam and Eve's disobedience. That's how seriously God considers our disregard for his glory. Our sense of what's good and what's evil is badly out of order. And and indeed, some of the pain and suffering that God does bring into the world is designed to bring us back to the right knowledge of, of his glory, to correct our wrong perspective and to direct us back to him. So, Pain is not an objective evil in itself, even though we usually tend to think of it that way. Not all that is, harm, not all that is, is painful is harmful. Much suffering God indeed brings in order to bring us back to what is ultimately far better for us. 
So scripture might not answer all of the philosophical questions that we might have to our satisfaction, but God's word does correct our perspective and reminds us that we don't put God on trial. He demands that we bow before him. We need to recognize we are responsible for our own sins. We cannot shift the blame to God. And that God is even so working all things for the ultimate good of His glory and also for the good, as Romans Romans 8 says, for the good of those who love Him. And here's the thing then. Knowing that all things come from God's hands, from your Father's hands indeed, is vital for your faith and your growth as a Christian. That's the reality. As Christians, God is our Father in Christ. That's also confessed in the last Lord's Day that we looked at at last time. And so as Paul says in Romans 8 verse 28, we know that for those who love God, He is working all things to their good for those who are called according to His purpose. And that really means all things. As the Catechism says, riches and poverty, health and sickness, indeed, even death. And not just that God allows those things to happen to us. No, your Father, who loves you, decrees that those things would come your way for the ultimate good of His glory and also for your good. Now, Joseph, you can imagine, would have struggled with that as his brothers were selling him into slavery. And he probably would have struggled even more after he had refused to commit adultery with the wife of Potiphar Potiphar, in service to God. And yet, instead of being rewarded by God for that, he found himself being thrown into prison because Potiphar was too proud or too naive to listen to him. Now, did that come from God's hands as well? It's easy for us to look back now and we can say, yes, we can see God's hand in that. But certainly it would not have been easy for Joseph at that time to see God's hand in it. He, from, all, from, from his perspective, he probably looked at his future and saw himself rotting in prison for the rest of his life. And perhaps even being executed as others were. And for many faith, and the reality is that many faithful believers have spent their entire lives in prison. Does that also come from God's hands? A young Huguenot girl in France during the time of the Reformation was imprisoned for her faith when she was 14 years old, and she spent the next 38 years of her life in prison because she would not renounce her faith. Does that also come from God's hands? Well, by God's grace, Joseph, for his part, and that girl, for her part, were able to keep looking to God because they understood and believed that all things come from their father's hands. And when all was said and done, Joseph could testify to his brothers that you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many would be kept alive as it is today. Well, we need that knowledge of God's sovereignty, the knowledge that all things come from your Father's hands in order to endure the pain and suffering that God has given us. And indeed, not only to endure it, but to even use it for God's glory and for our own growth. 
There's few things as necessary for our growth as Christians as that knowledge that all things, especially our trials, come from our Father's hands. And without that knowledge that God, our, our Heavenly Father, as, as Jesus emphasized so many times, your, your Father who is in heaven, without that knowledge that because of Christ He is with us and even for us, in the middle of our suffering, well, then the pain does become meaningless and truly unbearable. And it does nothing in the end then for our own spiritual growth, our our growth in our faith. But when we recognize that even the worst trials have come precisely because God has decreed them for our good, then we can start doing what, for example, the Apostle James says in, in, first, in James 1, verse 2, Count it all joy, he says, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. In some trials, we can't possibly imagine how God could ever use them for good. We might think, what good could ever come from God taking a child away? What good could come from constant bodily pain every day? What good can come from sin that we've had to witness or even a sin that we've, had, that, that we've received or endured? To say that God is sovereign is not to say that, that sin will be excused or that sinners don't need to be held accountable. They do, and hell exists precisely for that reason. Whatever sins aren't covered by the blood of Christ will ultimately be covered by the fire of hell. But what people have intended for good, even the worst things, God still, or what people have intended for evil, that is, God still uses for good, for the ultimate good of showing his worth, of bringing us back to himself, and then also even for the good of all of those who love him. So the Catechism asks the question, what does it benefit us to know that God upholds all things by His providence? And it answers the question, we can be patient in adversity and thankful in prosperity and with a view to the future, we can have a firm confidence in our faithful God and Father that no creature can separate us from His love. Now that patience in adversity, it doesn't just mean enduring it, toughing it out, waiting for it, to pass in some kind of stoic uh, manner. Nor does it mean, even, even worse, becoming bitter, which is surely the worst way to waste the suffering that God has given you. Those whom, whom God has, has called to suffer the most in this life are often those whom He is intending to make the greatest in their faith, provided that they do not waste that suffering by simply looking for a way to end it or by becoming bitter. So patience in adversity doesn't just mean toughing it out. It means drawing closer to God in the midst of adversity. It means knowing that He doesn't give us any of this suffering without a purpose in mind, even if we don't understand what that purpose might possibly be. And perhaps we never will until this life is over. After, after our sermon series in, in Kings, I hope to spend a few months in the book of Philippians. And that's one of the great themes of the book of Philippians, glorifying God in the midst of our adversities. And not, not in spite of our adversities, but indeed by means of 
our adversities, using our suffering to magnify Christ, to glorify God, and to come near to our Father. The other side of this is being thankful in prosperity, as the Catechism mentions. If God can work evil for good, how much more can He bring good to even greater good? And that's also one of the most pervasive themes in in, in the New Testament, and especially in Philippians and in the other letters of Paul, you might think of 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 18, where he says, Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. If that's God's will for you in your adversity, which it, it certainly is, it's certainly then also His will for you in prosperity. He rules over the details of your life for good. And when we're suffering in adversity, we can see His hand and draw nearer to Him. When He blesses us in prosperity, we ought to overflow in gratitude and thankfulness to Him. Sometimes the good that God wants to give us comes by means of adversity. Sometimes it simply comes in the form of gracious, undeserved blessings. And all of us have experienced many of those. Our Father rejoices to do good to us. He's a father like any father that loves to give, that loves to do good. You think of what the Lord Jesus says, if you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more your father in heaven. He's a father who gives generously and rejoices even to give to his people. So then, not only do we, do we draw near to God in adversity, but we also give thanks to God for the blessings that He gives us in times of, of prosperity or in times of other, other blessings, because we know that even those are also not, uh, are, are, are not deserved. They're God's grace overflowing from Him to us. So the exhortation to you is this. If you believe that God is sovereign, and he rules over even the smallest details of your life, which he does, then come near to God in prayer, knowing that he gives all things to you. That was the Lord Jesus' exhortation in in Matthew 7, verse 11 again. If you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good things to those who ask him for them? So let your life then be a testimony, not only to the knowledge that God is, is sovereign and ruling over the difficult sides of your life, but also that you ask Him for all that you need and trust Him to give all that you need. Use your prayers to give thanks to God and to show God that you trust Him for all that, all that you need. Ask Ask him that he would use your trials for good and for his glory. And then that is ultimately the greatest good of all, that your life would glorify him. So believe and trust that he will use even the worst sufferings for your good and for his glory. And then use your suffering to to serve him, to glorify him, to show his goodness in your life. Amen.